Hello and welcome to the Backtracker History Show with me, Alice. Join me as I go delving through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. From tales of pirates and privateers to murderers, tragic accidents to wartime escapades, this podcast has it all. And this episode is no exception, so get ready to give your ears a treat and maybe learn a few things on the way. Today's story came about as I was actually researching another story. On the south wall of the cloisters of Salisbury Cathedral, there's a memorial to a Mr. A.T. Corf, who was the organist of the cathedral. And underneath, there's one to Arthur Corf Angel, aged 19, his grandson. Arthur was an officer whose post was the donkey engine on board the SS London, a British steamship which sank in the Bay of Biscay in 1866. Arthur Corth Angel also had a memorial plaque in Exeter Cathedral, which reads, To the memory of Arthur Corth Angel, eldest son of Alfred Angel, organist of this cathedral, and his wife Anne, born August 1845. He was an officer of the steamship London, which founded in the Bay of Biscay, January 11th, 1866, on her voyage to Melbourne, in one of the most fatal gales on record, where only 19 out of 263 souls were saved. A true-hearted and dauntless sailor, counting duty more precious than life, he remained at his post to the last and was seen by survivors with his hands still upon the engine of which he was in charge, calmly awaiting death when the waters closed over the ship. In testimony of his worth and in token of sympathy with his bereaved parents, This tablet, simple as becomes the rare simplicity of his character, is placed here by Dean and Chapter. After finding this out, I was intrigued enough to do some further research. Discovered a story that changed maritime law forever. Because shipwrecks were tragically common in the 1860s, the official figure being 10 every week with a loss of at least 34 lives. Alas, the real figure could be so much more, given that they only reflect the shipwrecks which took place off the coast of Britain. But we're just concerned with one. Launched in 1864, the SS London was a steamship that looked like a sailing ship, a hybrid ship, as they were called back then. And she was capable of moving under steam or sail. Just two years old when she embarked on her final journey the SS London was considered both modern and luxurious. Beautifully decorated inside, she was capable of travelling at up to 11 knots. That's fast. Many passengers had chosen to travel on her to Australia because she was so fast. One passenger said, 
I can spend a month longer time at home and still be at Melbourne as soon by her as though I started a month earlier by sailing vessel. Word of the week. And this week, it's my honour to bring you... Fathom, which is a nautical measure equal to six foot, used to measure the depth of water at sea. The word was also used to describe taking the measure or to fathom something. Day, when one is trying to figure something out, they are trying to fathom it out or get to the bottom of it. The SS London was considered a safer way of travelling as it was a steamship and Captain Martin was highly regarded. On paper, it was the perfect journey. The final voyage of the SS London began on the 13th of December 1865 when the ship left Gravesend in Kent, bound for Melbourne. The ship was due to take on passengers from Plymouth but was caught in heavy weather and the captain decided to take refuge at Spithead near Portsmouth. The London eventually docked in Plymouth, where passengers embarked, setting sail for Australia on the 6th of January, 1866. But a story, later highly publicised, said that when she was en route down the Thames, a seaman seeing her pass perfectly said, It'll be her last voyage. She's too low in the water. She'll never rise in a stiff sea. She was carrying 263 passengers and crew, including six stowaways, as well as railway steel and coal. On the third day out, while crossing the Bay of Biscay in heavy seas, the cargo shifted and her scuppers choked, forcing the vessel to lower in the water, where she was swept by tremendous seas. The rolling was so severe that on January the 7th, a Sunday, the church service was cancelled, which is an indication in itself that the storm was quite ferocious, because in those days, religion was considered a high priority. The next two days in the Bay of Biscay, the London ploughed on into a southwesterly gale under steam only. Her speed was estimated as two knots. January the 9th found the ship taking seas over her bows, and at daybreak, a lifeboat was washed away. Two hours later, the bows drove under so heavily that the sea and the shaking that followed took down the jib boom, the fore topmast, the fore top gallant, fore royal and main royal mast, and with them their spars, sails and rigging. the heavy seas battered the poor ship. The masts fell inwards onto the deck, held there by the tangled rigging, but the jib boom remained under the bows, held there by wire stays. All efforts to clear this failed and the London wallowed all day and the following night as the storm continued unabated. On the 10th of January, Water poured down the hatches, extinguishing her fires and forcing the captain to turn around and return to Plymouth. In doing so, he headed straight back into the eye of the storm. The wrecked masks were secured and the jib boom was finally cleared away. Towards evening, however, 
another violent squall hit, stripping away the stay sails and another boat. By nine o'clock in the evening, the wind was estimated to be at hurricane strength. The engine was stopped and the ship placed under main topsail only. This was soon blown to shreds and the engine had to be restarted. On 11th of January, a huge sea crashed on deck, smashing the engine hatch, an avalanche of water entering the engine room, putting out the fires once again. The captain realised that getting the engine going again was the only hope now, but all efforts to close off the engine room hatch with sails, mattresses and spars failed. The water level in the compartment was still rising, and the captain finally told his men, Boys, you may say your prayers. More water poured in, this time destroying the upper decks. And at 10am on the 11th, the captain gave the order to ready the lifeboats for lowering. The lifeboats had been swamped as soon as they were launched, and at the last moment, the only successful effort was made. The port cutter, getting away with 19 souls on board, but only three being passengers. Captain Martin found a Wesleyan minister, a Mr Draper, praying with some women and children gathered around him. With a heavy heart, the captain told them, Ladies, there is no hope for us, I'm afraid. Nothing short of a miracle can save us. Mr Draper, the minister, added, The captain tells us that there is no hope, that we all must perish, but I tell you there is hope for all. His wife was apparently not convinced because when a seaman tried to get her into a boat, she handed him a rug. He asked her how she would cope without it, and she replied, It will only be for a few moments longer. <laughs> Word on the street. And this week we go to the area of St George and Blackswath Road. In medieval times, this land was owned by the Benedictine monks of St Augustine, the Blackfriars. The soil here was also black because of the surrounding coal pits. The word swath or swat means very dark. Interestingly, this street was originally known as Fire Engine Lane because of the pumping engine used to raise the coal. Power was generated by water by means of fire. It also explains how the pub on the corner of the A420, the fire engine, got its name. One of the stories told about the only successful lifeboat that was launched was that Captain Martin ordered the ship's engineer, Greenhill, into it with the words... Your duty is done. Mine is to remain here. When the boat was lowered, the captain was once again asked and pleaded with to enter it. But he replied, No, I will go down with the passengers, but I wish you Godspeed and safe to land. And with that, he threw in a compass to the boat and shouted, North, northeast to Brest. To able seaman John King, who is steering the life raft, as the course he should take to safety. At the last moment, one of the seamen on board the life raft shouted that there was space for one more woman. And so a search of the deck began, which produced a young lady found by Mr. Wilson. Wilson was aware that every second was precious and asked her beforehand if she would go, to which she replied, yes. 
but when she looked over the railings and saw how far she would have to jump, she panicked. Mr. Wilson, realising that the ship was sinking fast, pushed her overboard and followed himself. They both managed to get to the safety of the lifeboat and get away before it would have been sucked under with the London. When Greenhill's lifeboat was a hundred yards off, the London went down, stern first. As she sank, all those on deck were driven forward by the overpowering rush of air from below. Her bows rose high till her keel was visible and then she was swallowed up forever in a whirlpool of water. The last thing that survivors heard was a hymn, Rock of Ages, coming from the ship before the ship swiftly sank. Helpless as she was in the raging seas, the London took with her 244 people. The 19 people who got away in her cutter were the only ones saved, and they were picked up the next day by the bark Marianapol and landed at Falmouth. Messages in bottles were later found on the French coast from those who had died. One was from a Mr H.F.D. Dennis, who wrote... Adieu, fathers, brothers and sisters, and my dear Edith. Steamer London, Bay of Biscay, ship too heavily laden for its size and too crank. Windows stove in, water coming in everywhere. God bless my poor orphans. Storm not too violent for a ship in good condition. One particularly tragic story of a passenger was of one of the many ladies on board who had selected the ship because she was very near giving birth to her first child. Under the stress and strain of that horrendous storm, she gave birth, and when the ship went down, she was seen holding her baby above her head in eternal hope that her child would be saved. When news reached England, the public were overcome with grief and sorrow, and a fund was quickly set up to help the bereaved. As was the tradition in that era, the Scottish poet William McConagall wrote the epic verse about it. Here is a mere portion. "'Twas in the year of 1866, and on a very beautiful day, that 82 passengers with spirits light and gay left Gravesend Harbour and sailed gaily away, on board the steamship London, bound for the city of Melbourne, which unfortunately was her last run, because she was wrecked on the stormy main, which has caused many a heart to throb with pain, because they will ne'er look upon their lost ones again. In the same storm, the SS Amalia was lost, but all was saved by another ship. Her Majesty's Government and the Board of Trade awarded Captain Cavassa of the Italian bark Marianapol a gold chronometer in recognition of his humanity to the survivors of the ship London in January 1866. The Board of Trade came up with three main factors that were attributed to the sinking of the SS London in the subsequent inquiry. The first one was the decision by the captain to return to Plymouth, as it was believed the ship had passed the worst of the weather conditions, and by turning back, the London re-entered the storm. 
Secondly, the ship was overloaded with 345 tonnes of railway iron. And the final factor was seen as the 50 tonnes of coal which were stored above deck, which, after the decks were washed with waves, blocked the scupper holes, which prevented drainage of the seawater. It's also worth noting that London had seven lifeboats, more than the legal requirement, but only sufficient to get one third of the passengers off the ship, because this was an era less concerned with health and safety than our own. Ship owners disliked lifeboats, feeling that they marred the view from the deck and objecting to the expense of replacing them every time they rotted, which was often. This particular journey had quite a few celebrities on board. The eldest son of William Debenham, founder of the Debenhams retail chain, was one, as was Gustavus V. Brooke, a well-known Shakespearean actor, much loved in Australia and on his way there for a farewell tour. Amusingly, this larger-than-life character, described as dissipated for his love of gambling, wine and women, remember, this is the Victorians we're talking about, had been chased on board by debt collectors and only managed to avoid them by dressing as a sailor and scrubbing the deck while his enemies looked for him. One source in describing Brooke's final moments said that Brooke was dressed only in a red Crimean shirt and trousers, bareheaded and barefooted, worked until work was useless. When last seen, about four hours before the ship went down, he was leaning calmly on one of the half doors in the companionway, his chin resting upon both hands while he watched the scene with grave composure. The captain of the London was 48-year-old John Bowen Martin, an officer of high reputation known for making rapid and successful voyages in the London-Australia run. He was from Westminster in London, unmarried and part owner of the ship. It's well known that sailing folk are superstitious people, and Captain Martin was no exception. He took care not to sail on a Friday, which was traditionally regarded as bad luck, waiting until a few minutes after midnight on Saturday the 6th of January. As we now know, this precaution failed to bring him good fortune. The crew comprised of 91 men and one woman, the woman performing the job of stewardess and nurse. Although the oldest member of the crew is 48, the average age of the crew, who numbered seamen, deck officers, stewards, surgeons and cooks, was only 24. What happened to the SS London gradually became known to the wider world, thanks in part to the lucky few who survived, most notably able seaman John King. King was unanimously regarded as the main factor that the survivors made it through the tragic event at all. In those days, news travelled much more slowly. Nobody in Australia, where people had been expecting their relatives to arrive safe and sound, knew until a mail ship brought the tragic tidings some two months later. But public reaction was swift with people unable at first to believe that such a calamity could have happened. The media, though, were more respectful of individual privacy in those days, so not much is known about how the majority of the bereaved dealt with the aftermath. However, Justice Henry Chapman, a judge in New Zealand who had been waiting in vain to be reunited 
with his wife and three children, who had all perished, wrote to his aunts about the disaster which had left him so desolate. He and many others were denied the closure of funerals, burials and gravestones for those whom had been lost, although there would be several public and private memorial services. The disaster of the London brought increased attention in Britain to the dangerous conditions of the coffin ships overloaded by unscrupulous shipowners, and the publicity had a major role in Bristolian Samuel Plimsoll's campaign to reform shipping so as to prevent further such disasters. This one helped stimulate Parliament to establish the famous Plimsoll Line, although it took many years. The Plimsoll Line is a reference mark located on a ship's hull that indicates the maximum depth to which the vessel may be safely immersed when loaded with cargo. The Plimsoll Line did not become compulsory for British registered ships until 1876. Foreign ships visiting British ports were not required to comply until 1906. There was also the problem about how many lifeboats would be on each ship and it was only after the Titanic catastrophe in 1912 that this concern was at last addressed comprehensively. If someone has COVID-19, they breathe it out in particles, particles that linger in the air like smoke. But one in three people who have the virus have no symptoms and could be breathing it onto others without knowing. So when you go out, wear a face covering in enclosed busy spaces to help reduce the amount of COVID-19 particles in the air. Stop COVID-19 hanging around. In the news today, boffins in Bristol have discovered that when you mix alcohol and American literature, you get Tequila Mockingbird. Back in the day facts. And let's start off with the 5th of February, 1597, when a group of early Japanese Christians, known as the 26 Martyrs, were killed by the new government of Japan for being seen as a threat to Japanese society. On the 6th of Feb, 1952, Queen Elizabeth II succeeds George VI to the British throne and proclaimed Queen of the United Kingdom and the other Commonwealth realms, including Canada, Australia and New Zealand. On the 7th of February, 1944, Bing Crosby records Swinging on a Star for Decca Records. It then goes on to win the Academy Award for Best Original Song. On the 8th of Feb, 1960, Queen Elizabeth II, again, issues an order in council stating that she and her family would be known as the House of Windsor and that her descendants will take the name Mountbatten Windsor. On the 9th of Feb, 1961, saw the Beatles' first gig at Liverpool's Cavern Club, where they would play there nearly 300 times over the next two years. And lastly, on the 10th of Feb, 1535, 12 nude Anabaptists run through Amsterdam's streets. 
folks, that's it from me for this week. But don't worry, I'll be here same time, same place next week. And as always, I would love to thank those that really bring the stories to life. And this week, we have Max Berry, John Locke and Steve Shepherd from Bradley Stoke Radio, as well as Sam Roberts, Carrie Ball, Joe Wilson and Molly Jeffries from St. Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol, and Cerise Reed. Thank you, one and all. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background, that's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>